story in the book. A man loves a woman, but the man is too ugly, he is too fat, too scrawny, too short, too old, he has no money, no job, no class, no education, no eyebrows, he has a skin disease, he has scissor hands, he has a tapeworm that sings Vivaldi arias, he is a creep, a loser, a 40-year-old virgin, a compulsive masturbator, an unfrozen caveman from the Upper Paleolithic. Alas, alack, the woman can never be his. But that's not really much of a story, so a twist of fate. Maybe the man and the woman become unwitting participants in a web of international intrigue. Maybe the man discovers a magical pair of tap shoes in a vintage haberdashery and is granted austere-like powers of agility and balladic grace. Maybe the man and the woman are transported to 15th century Iberia in a time-traveling Honda Civic and must rely on luck, their wits, and each other to survive the horrors of the Spanish Inquisition. Maybe the man saves the woman from being fatally trampled by an unfrozen woolly mammoth, recently escaped from a newly unveiled exhibit at the Smithsonian, and barreling down the congested roadways of our nation's capital during peak rush hour. Suddenly, the man no longer seems so ugly. His weight is of little concern. His scissor hands make all the difference in an alleyway encounter with the Estonian mob. The woman grows to appreciate the man's virgin innocence, look past his lack of eyebrows, admire his opera-singing tapeworm. Valuable lessons about inner beauty and the deception of appearances are learned during choreographed dance sequences in a Smithsonian freight elevator in the interior of the time-traveling Honda four-door sedan. Can love overcome every odd? It can. Does love conquer all? It does. I sit alone in the back of the theater and finish off the last of my oil-drowned gargantua-sized popcorn as man and woman finally unite, beast and beauty, stunner and psoriasis sufferer, homecoming queen and Cro-Magnon. There is a tender embrace, there is an epic kiss, there is the swoon of a big band, the swell of a 99-piece orchestra, the salute of a marauding prehistoric elephant, there is a fade to black. There are special acknowledgments. There is an alphabetical listing of gaffers, best boys, and key grips. There is happiness ever after. A boy loves a girl. The boy is from the wrong side of the tracks. On the right side of the tracks, there is golf and mixed doubles tennis, and Old Navy, and people named Rutherford and Chet. On the wrong side of the tracks, there is cockfighting, and paint huffing, and Waffle House, and people named Booger, and Blood. The girl is from the right side of the tracks. Her strongest club in golf is her nine iron, and her strongest stroke in mixed doubles tennis is her forehand topspin from the baseline. I sit alone in the middle of the theater, choosing my seat carefully so as not to occlude the view of the couples behind me. I'm not especially tall, I tend to slouch down in my seat, but even so, if I sit in front of someone else, I'm unable to enjoy myself as I become too self-conscious about potentially obstructing someone else's enjoyment. The boy crosses from the wrong side of the tracks to the right side, and instantly he is laughed at and spit upon 
and beaten up with golf clubs and tennis rackets. The boy learned the pain of economic disparity. The boy learned the pain of a well-aimed sand wedge. The boy puts ointment on his bruises and pulls cat-gut tennis strings out of various bodily orifices and cries himself to sleep, lamenting his cursed lot to be born on the wrong side of the freight trains, barreling past his blighted tenement, its floors shaking, its pipes rattling, its questionably regulation insulation falling from the ceiling in a puffy yellow snow. On the other side of the freight trains, the girl kisses the most handsome Rutherford in her school in a grove of cottonwood trees, their seeds showering the young lovers like slow-motion wedding rice. Clean. Pure. White. But the story can't end here. Who would pay ten dollars for this? The haves having, the have-nots have-nodding, separated for all eternity by wooden ties and steel tracks. So... Cue the metamorphosis. Maybe the boy befriends a disgraced, tax-evading former tennis star who teaches the boy how to hit a 110-mile-per-hour kick serve and how to tame unruly hair with a stylish terry cloth headband. Maybe the boy befriends a reclusive, hard-drinking golf pro who teaches the boy how to consistently drive 400 yards and how to stun the ladies in checkered socks and pleated white pants. In a series of montages set to classic rock favorites of the 1970s and 80s, the boy transforms from a rough-and-tumble Waffle House frequenting streak greaser into a trophy-winning, martini-swizzling bon vivant. He cultivates an affinity for foie gras and beluga. He educates himself on the finer points of commodity trading, horse breeding, chess. He purchases annual subscriptions to the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard, the Christian Science Monitor. He develops a deep appreciation for the music of Johannes Brahms, Franz Liszt, Boz Skaggs. The boy crosses from the wrong side of the tracks to the right side, and no one taunts, expectorates, pummels him with carbon fiber athletic equipment. Instead, they invite him to rugby exhibitions, yacht excursions. Instead, they invite him to catered events with ice swans, jazz trios, mini quiche. The boy enters as a last-minute contestant in the local country club's golf or tennis invitational and handily thumps all opposition, winning a gleaming trophy and an oversized novelty check and the girl's love and affection. A sore loser reveals the boy's dark secret, his humble, grease-stained origins on the other side of the tracks, but the boy's response a stirring, heartfelt oratory accompanied by the tasteful vibrato of a string quartet convinces all in attendance with the folly of classism, the universality of inner worth, and the tracks are torn up, all trains are rerouted through industrial Newark and Jersey City, and soon, with no line of demarcation between them, the two sides united as one, investment bankers enjoying the all-star special at Waffle House, welfare moms purchasing roll-up capris at Old Navy, the boy and girl sharing an intimate moment in a redeveloped housing project once known as The Pit, now freshly monikered Pheasant Lawn Estates. In the theater, couples leave arm-in-arm, striding up dimly lit aisles toward the exits as I and a few stragglers remain, absently speed-reading the names of makeup artists, foley editors, digital playback technicians, when I entered the theater, it was still light out, the sun in slow descent, the air warm, the earth baked, 
the surrounding trees cacophonous with chattering birds. When I leave, push open the theater's exterior double doors, I emerge from darkness into darkness, the sky black, the air still, the earth obscured in shadow. I bike home, alone, on poorly or unlit streets, and am passed on the left by faceless, shapeless motorists. Overhead, far from reach, glitters an illegible marquee of shining stars. A child is lonely. His parents are divorced. His best friend is a pet rock. The other children steal his lunch money and push him headfirst into garbage cans, urinals, and mud. On the days he's supposed to be with his mother, his mother leaves him a note with various neighbors' cell phone numbers and a Tupperware container of rotini in the fridge, and the boy does his homework, eats his reheated rotini, and falls asleep while watching America's least successful professional stuntman alone on the couch. On the days he's supposed to be with his father, his father forgets to pick him up from basketball practice, yet again, and the child spends the night sleeping beneath the gymnasium bleachers, avoiding detection by the night janitor, cradling a regulation-sized basketball in his arms to get him through the long night. The child's basketball team's last place in their division, composed of talentless, passionless malcontents, coached by a troubled city bus driver, court-ordered into community service after drunk driving his bus through the plate glass windows of a used Hyundai dealership. The team regularly scores on itself, begs the refs to invoke the mercy rule, earns more fouls than it does points, and after every game, the coach delivers a spirited pep talk, light on pep, but rich with bench kicking, and clipboard throwing, and locker destroying, and the team is banned from using any gymnasiums visiting team facilities, and must change and conduct halftime strategy sessions beneath scores tables, or behind concession stands, or inside school dumpsters. Of course, no one wants to eat milk duds through 90 minutes of loneliness. No one wants to waste one and a half minimum wage hours watching the unrelenting miseries of hopeless failures. And so, a reprieve. One night, as the child wanders outside the gymnasium after again being forgotten by his father, he discovers an abandoned dog foraging for stale popcorn left over from the child's team's recent triple-digit defeat. The child opens up his duffel bag and offers the mangy flea-bitten stray the remainder of his mom's hastily made leftover rotini sandwich, accompanied by a handwritten note with the phone numbers of distant relatives and the poison control hotline, and the dog greedily devours both the note and the sandwich and instantly replaces the pet rock as the child's best friend. As the child lets the dog into the gymnasium, tosses him a basketball, discovers to his amazement that the dog can make layups, free throws, hook shots, can set picks, can box out, can understand the intricacies of the 1-2-2 zone defense. I notice that a couple in the rear right corner of the theater is making out, their tongues in each other's mouths, their hands on each other's thighs, their cokes knocked onto the floor, a syrupy stream cascading down the aisles beneath my slightly inclined seat. I have discovered that there are no genre restrictions for making out in the theater. 
I have seen couples kiss during documentaries. I have seen heavy petting during cautionary tales about teen pregnancy. I have witnessed what was almost surely a hand job during archival footage of the dropping of the atomic bombs. On a few occasions, I've taken a girl to the theater, but have never enjoyed the experience. I can't follow the plot, can't process the dialogue, can't lose myself in the celluloid fantasies of Hollywood cinema when I'm with someone else. Instead, all I can think is, does she like me? Will she kiss me? If she kisses me, will she still like me? If she kisses me and still likes me, will she one day no longer kiss me, or no longer like me? both. The child's dog interrupts one of the child's team's lopsided losses, steals the basketball, dribbles to half court, drains a 40-footer, nothing but net, and when the community service performing coach substitutes the dog in for his point guard, the ref spends a 20-minute official timeout pouring through the league's official rulebook before finally announcing, well, there's nothing in the rules that says a dog can't play basketball. The team goes on to win their conference's year-end tournament. The dog's previous owner, a cruel, violent, substance-abusing clown, attempts to steal the dog back but fails, and the child's mother and father rekindle their love, move back in together, recognize the havoc wrought by their separation, their lackluster parenting. When I leave the theater, the couple in the rear right corner are still making out, biting each other's ears, biting each other's necks, rubbing each other's skin with choo-choo bees and sour patch kids and milk duds. I go home, alone, and make the usual search inquiries on my laptop computer. A man delivers a pizza, a man offers a ride, a man cleans a pool, a man fixes a pipe, and a woman tosses away her clothing and inhibitions and gratitude. Who knew love could be so easy?
as a woman. The man is too ugly, too fat, too short, too bald. He has no money, no job, no prospects, no health insurance, no 401k plan. He has a tapeworm that sinks baroque madrigals. He cuts open sacks of potatoes with his scissor hands in the dank basement of a waffle house. He fashions crude tools out of stones and sharpened sticks and hunts for squirrels and stray pets in the well-manicured grounds of the National Mall. Sometimes, I see a girl I know in the theater, and if the film is not sufficiently engrossing, does not transport me from the mundanity of human existence to a fictional world of flight and fancy, I find myself lapsing into lucid dreams, wooing the girl as the man who is the woman on the screen, with smoldering gazes, with tear-jerking monologues, with tap dance routines, with earnest performances of show tunes. The man and the woman visit Elizabethan England in the man's time-traveling Honda Civic and inspire Shakespeare, who witnesses the Civic parallel parking outside a joust to pin a three-act historical tragedy about the rise and fall of the compact car. Once, during a film about a beautiful FDA inspector's odds-defying romance with a habitually code-violating poultry farmer, I saw a girl I had asked out ten years prior, in eighth grade. A girl who had rejected me in favor of a classmate who looked kind of like me, but whose house had a pool table, a big screen TV, and a portable tanning bed. My house had Monopoly, shoots and ladders, and a malfunctioning toaster my friends and I could coax into catching on fire. The girl was still with the same guy, he prematurely losing his hair, she visibly pregnant, and as the man on the screen reclined the front seat to the Civic, lay down with the woman in the leather-trimmed interior, in Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare outside, lauding the Civic's power door locks and iambic pentameter, I couldn't help but think, would that have been me, sitting next to her, sharing coke from the same straw, patting her swollen belly, if my parents had owned a pool table? Would that have been me, if my parents had owned a big screen TV? boy loves a girl. The boy is from the wrong side of the tracks. On the right side of the tracks there is yachting, and commodities trading, and pottery barn, and smooth jazz. On the wrong side of the tracks there are drag races, and street brawls, and needle exchanges, and death metal. The first time I ever took a girl to the movie theater was in 11th grade. I paid for my ticket, she paid for hers. Right from the beginning, any hopes of back row grappling and groping were summarily crushed. The boy finds himself in a montage of self-improvement, the golf pro or the former tennis star instructing him on proper stance, proper technique, proper etiquette, how to hit with a continental grip, how to read a fairway, how to hold a salad fork, how to tie a tie, and I find myself back in 11th grade at the ticket counter, offering, no insisting, that I pay for both tickets. I am aware of the proper etiquette. I am aware of the proper technique. 
the boy slow dances with the girl to Boz Skaggs, look what you've done to me, at a fancy country club soiree, and as the jealous Rutherfords and Chats look on, the boy and girl kiss beneath the swiveling disco ball, painting the lovers' faces with cycling shards of light. The first time I ever kissed a girl was in my parents' 1996 Chevy Lumina minivan. I neglected to put the minivan in park, took my foot off the brake, and just as I worked up the courage to serve the girl my tongue a la Francaise, the minivan crunched into the rear bumper of a parked Volkswagen. Needless to say, neither the girl nor the Volkswagen's owner was impressed. The boy is badly losing in the final set of the championship tennis match, the back nine of the Invitational Golf Tournament, but then he remembers some choice nugget of wisdom oft uttered by his sage, beloved, now cancer-diagnosed coach, and the boy digs in deep, bounces back, and wins the trophy, the girl, the day. The names of boom operators and sound technicians flicker ethereally before my eyes. A stream of coke floods like a small tributary beneath my seat. During quiet moments of the film, I can hear faint moaning, faint rustling, the sound of zippers, muffled gasps. child is lonely. His father is dead, and his mother works double shifts for an online floral boutique and for a suicide and crisis intervention hotline. Sometimes she is so tired, she forgets, mid-conversation, if her callers want to kill themselves or just want to purchase a nice bouquet of roses or chrysanthemums or geraniums. The child's classmates shove him into lockers and girls' bathrooms and St. Vincent de Paul donation boxes, and his football teammates steal his clothes from his locker and throw them into the toilet or the school furnace, and the child resigns himself to wearing his team uniform, helmet, pads, jersey, spandex, cleats, at all times. Luckily, the child befriends an escaped zoo orangutan who can throw a perfect spiral and run the spread offense and the option, and after a referee admits that there's nothing in the rules that says an orangutan can't play football, the child's team wins its league championship, the child wins the respect of his peers, and the child's mother wins the heart of a wealthy investment banker whose three-figure annual salary ensures that the mother will never have to talk another frantic caller out of suicide, never have to jot down the shipping information for another floral bouquet. I go home and watch the inevitable conclusions of pizza deliveries, pool cleanings, rides from the airport, plumbing repairs, man and woman, always agreeing, yes, yes, always, yes. I think about looking up the address of the girl from 11th grade, knocking on her door, presenting her with a piping hot 12-inch pepperoni, asking her if she would like a receipt. Yes, she says. Yes, yes. Oh God, yes. A man loves a woman. He is too ugly 
too fat, too Cro-Magnon, etc. He has no money, no job, no concept of calendrical time, etc., etc. He grunts, he slobbers, he smells, he bashes in the skulls of people's pet schnauzers with large sedimentary rocks, etc., etc., etc. Miraculously, after the man saves a beautiful Smithsonian tour guide from the schizoid rampage of an unfrozen woolly mammoth, the woman falls in love with him. She looks past his shortcomings, his grunting, his prominent forehead, his abhorrence of modern hygienic practices, and sees the true beauty that lies within his beating, amorous, recently unfrozen heart. Another man loves the same woman. There is nothing outwardly wrong with this man. He is of average height and build. He is nice enough looking. He, like the woman, works as a Smithsonian tour guide. His forehead is of normal construction and size, but whenever he tries to flirt with his beautiful co-worker, she turns cool to him. Whenever he invites her to coffee, to lunch, to the movies, she blows him off, says, maybe some other time. The man eventually accepts her disinterest. Maybe she's seen someone else. Maybe the timing's not right. Maybe he's just not her type. But then, he sees the tour guide at the reflecting pool, walking arm in arm with the recently unfrozen caveman, planting upon his Cro-Magnon forehead a series of passionate kisses, and the man becomes deeply depressed. She won't have coffee with him, but she'll have coffee with the man who shrieks in terror every time the espresso grinder turns on at Starbucks. She won't have lunch with him, but she'll have lunch with a man born 10,000 years before the development of the fork. The man starts to worry that there is something profoundly wrong with him, something so awful, so despicable, so unforgivable, that it makes women find him less attractive than a malodorous, loin-clothed, schnauzer-hunting prehistoric cave-dweller. The man has trouble sleeping. He develops hives, cold sores, an ulcer. His work performance is affected. He tells a tour group of visiting schoolchildren that the Ice Age was caused by a woman's scorn. Eventually, after he attempts to take a tour group of sixth graders on an educational detour to the woman's apartment, his supervisor lets him go, and the man loses it. He stops eating. He stops drinking. He urinates into a coffee mug stolen from the Smithsonian gift shop. He refuses to leave the house. He calls the Suicide and Crisis Intervention Hotline, and the operator tries to sell him a mixed bouquet of peonies and tulips. A couple makes out in front of me, smooching, smacking, sucking, and I turn to my left and see a young woman who I swear is the girl from 11th grade, my first ever date, now all grown up, the six years since our last encounter, at a post-graduation beer keg bacchanal, having treated her, by all appearances, well. I try to make eye contact, but her gaze remains affixed to the screen. Projected light dances across her face. A man, her boyfriend, shares soda from the same straw and eats Mike and Ikes out of her cupped left hand. The beautiful tour guide and the Cro-Magnon kiss, the music swells, the credits roll, and the young woman and her man disappear into the theater aisle exodus. Exit. 
extricate, escape. I sit alone, slouched in my seat, fingering leftover popcorn kernels as I read the names of prop builders, lamp operators, pyrotechnicians. The credits end. The curtains fall. The projector shuts off. The end. Fiend. That's all, folks. Happily ever after. loves a girl. The boy is from the wrong side of the tracks. On the right side of the tracks, there is organic fruit butter and fair trade coffee. On the wrong side of the tracks, there are staph infections and blunt trauma to the face. On my first date in 11th grade, the boy on the screen befriended a former golf prodigy who was living in a wooden shack behind the local public courses clubhouse. Today, seven years later, The boy befriends a former golf prodigy living in a rodential burrow beneath an unforgiving bunker on hole 13. Much of what transpired on screen seven years ago is lost to me. So distracted was I by the 17-year-old stunner seated beside me. Did she like me? Would she kiss me? If she kissed me, would she still like me? If she kissed me and still liked me, would she one day no longer kiss me? Or no longer like me? Or both? I remember the boy being savagely beaten with seven irons. I remember the boy staring for time-lapsed hours and passing trains. I remember the boy's coach saying, Remember, son, keep it on the fairway, as he lay dying in a hospital bed, closed his eyes, drew his final breath. I remember the stirring swell of a 99-piece orchestra. I remember the dulcet tones of a young Boz Skaggs. How the boy crossed the tracks, fooled the Rutherfords, won the golf tournament, got the girl, taught the upper tax bracket a valuable lesson about the hidden tenacity and virtue secretly percolating beneath the poverty line. I can't recall. When the film ended, I drove my date home in my parents' Chevy Lumina, watched her hop out before I could even shift into park, stuck my head out the window, told her to call me whenever she liked. She never liked, never called, at least not that I remember. dead. His mother is dead. He's raised by a small troop of circus performers. His adoptive mother is a bearded lady. His adoptive father is a cruel, violent, substance-abusing clown. In the circus off-season, the boy enrolls in a public middle school in rural Wisconsin, where his classmates regularly pack him in a USPS priority mail flat-rate box and attempt to mail him to Hawaii or Alaska. 
his well-intentioned dog-faced adoptive uncle enrolls him in a youth hockey league and his teammates strip off his pants, tie him to the goal, and play multiple rounds of hit the goalie in the groin. Luckily, the child befriends a ring-tailed lemur with custom-fitted skates and a 100 mile per hour slap shot. There's nothing in the rules that says a ring-tailed lemur can't play ice hockey, says the referee, and the team's troubled coach, on parole for manslaughter, puts the lemur in at left wing. The child's team wins their league championship, the child is no longer mailed outside the continental US, and the child's cruel clown of an adoptive father is crushed to death by a manically depressive elephant named Princess, netting the bearded lady and the boy a regal sum in insurance money from the circus. The end. Fiend. Happily ever after. Except, during the closing credits, as the other moviegoers file out the exits in romantic pairs, jocular clumps, they find out what happened to the ring-tailed lemur's original owner, a hideous, hard-drinking, congenitally deformed sideshow freak billed in the circus as the world's most aesthetically displeasing man. For years, the world's most aesthetically displeasing man, hunchbacked, web-footed, alligator-skinned, elephant-faced, scissor-handed, resided with the lemur, his only friend, in a cramped sideshow cage car sandwiched between Ubongo the fire-breathing dwarf and Gary the certified public accountant from another realm. Curious circus-goers, lured by the horse-throated envaglement of the barkers, flocked to the man's cage, paying five dollars for vomit-inducing aesthetic displeasure or their money back, and the man received ten percent of all ticket sales, as stipulated in his contract. The majority of his earnings deferred to a private IRA, so that one day he and the lemur could retire to some place without bars and sprinkled sawdust and the ungodly wail of sirens whenever Ubongo's fire-breathing went horribly awry. For a time, this financially planned future made the man's misery manageable. Despite the jeers of the crowds, the hurled corn dogs and caramel corn, the cruel insinuations of carnies drunkenly staggering outside the man's cage car at night, the man was able to perceive the circus as not a hell, but a purgatory, a temporary state of privation and misery he and the lemur would one day leave behind. And at night, as Ubongo snored, and Gary, the certified public accountant from another realm, prepared the strongman's and trapeze artist's tax returns, the man slept with the lemur, curled into a fuzzy marsupial ball in his alligator-skinned arms, and dreamed of his retirement in some quaint country cottage, some remote island via, some foreclosed subterranean lair available for a bargain basement price. But then the recession hit, and the crowds dried up, as did the man's IRA, as did the sideshow's sawdust-covered floors once ankle-deep with paying customers' vomit, and the world's most aesthetically displeasing man found his shrewdly financially planned future evaporating like steam from the pipes of the circus's shrill calliope. Goodbye, Island Via. Goodbye, Country Cottage. Goodbye, Subterranean Lair, available for a bargain basement price. And thus did the world's most aesthetically displeasing man seek solace in the bottle, 
offering financial planning advice to uncaged freaks and carnies in exchange for Bud Lights and Heinekens from the circus concession carts, establish a budget, maximize your employee benefits, diversify your investment portfolio, pop, fizz, glug glug, ah, empty bottles carpeted the cage car's floor. When the world's most aesthetically displeasing man drank, he became introspective, and when he became introspective, he became depressed, and when he became depressed, he became violent, and when he became violent, the lemur, being the only other resident of the cage car, was by default the one to pay. Although the lemur had been the man's sole source of comfort in the cage car, the man's only confidant, his only friend, when the man drank, the lemur became little more than a ring-tailed target. Its water bowl kicked over, its face smacked, its paws stomped, its eponymous tail de-ringed with a man's cruel, efficient, brutally shearing scissors. Thankfully, the boy had rescued the lemur from the world's most aesthetically displeasing man, had given the lemur an affectionate and scissor-free home, had ushered the lemur into the fast-paced, high-pain world of professional ice hockey, as witnessed by all of us in the theater. But whatever happened to the man? A narrative postscript during the end credits tells all. Shaken by the loss of the lemur, deprived, for the first time in his adult life, of the presence of his only friend, the world's most aesthetically displeasing man finally admits his drinking problem and joins the circus's in-house chapter of AA. The chapter meets every Tuesday and Thursday evening in the menagerie, in between the Siberian tigers and Stumpy the one-legged giraffe, and the man, rolled into the menagerie in his cage car by his sponsor, Zigarelli, the fallen king of the flying trapeze, makes his customary introduction. Hi, I'm the world's most aesthetically displeasing man, and I am an alcoholic. The man, determined to never again wake upon a bed of shattered Heinekens in his cage car, throws himself into tackling AA's 12 steps. He admits he is powerless over alcohol. He believes that a power greater than himself can restore him to sanity. He makes a searching and fearless moral inventory of himself. He makes a list of all persons he has harmed and becomes willing to make amends to them all. He makes amends to the strong man, the wolf girl, the conjoined triplet tap dancers from Myanmar, formerly Burma. He makes amends to the trapeze artists, the elephant trainers, the beautiful sequined equestrian he would drunkenly accuse of having inappropriate relations with her horse. He makes amends to Lombardino, his manager, even though Lombardino, in light of the recession, abruptly discontinued the man's customary three square meals a day, forcing the man and his fellow freaks to beg paying customers for tiny bites of their corn dogs, funnel cakes, and cotton candy in order to survive. He makes amends to Ubongo, the fire-breathing dwarf, and Gary, the certified public accountant from another realm, who he kept up every night with his inebriated ramblings, his anguished screams, his feral, bestial shaking of the cage car's iron bars.
At the recommendation of Gary, the certified public accountant from another realm, the man makes a three-column spreadsheet to keep track of the harm he has and has not amended. The first column is for the names of those the man has harmed, e.g. Gary, Lombardino, Giselda the astonishing somersaulting midget. The second column is for the harm committed, e.g. urinated on shoes, smashed Bud Light lime on head, falsely accused of inappropriate relations with Stumpy the one-legged giraffe. The last column is for a check mark when the harm has been amended, the man expressing to the harmed his deepest regret, his profound shame, begging the harmed for their forgiveness, their blessing, their signature or initials in the last column of his spreadsheet, and little by little, day by day, the last column fills up with names, initials, and harm-amending checks, until one morning, after the world's most aesthetically displeasing man apologizes to a gypsy fortune teller for the bogus financial planning advice he gave her, which resulted in the loss of her life savings and creditors' repossession of her crystal ball, every box in the harm-amended column has been checked, signed, initialed, every box, except one, the lemurs. By now, the world's most aesthetically displeasing man has, of course, heard about the lemurs' storied success in the NHL. Everyone has, even Reinhardt the deaf-mute ventriloquist, whose silent nightly performances with his skeletal dummy, Mr. Bones, are among the circus's least popular attractions. It's not unusual for the man to overhear carnies rehashing the play-by-play from last night's Canucks game, their voices quavering with excitement as they reach narrative climax. Lemur shoots, lemur scores. It's not unexpected when the man sees cotton candy devouring circus goers wearing the lemur's jersey, number 66, the same as Pittsburgh Penguins great Mario Lemieux, even when the circus is thousands of miles from Vancouver, hundreds of miles from anything resembling a hockey rink, in a part of the country where ice is only found in gas station freezers and convenience store slurpees. No, North America's love for the lemur is universal, transcending race, gender, age, nationality, geography, thanks in no small part to the lemur's countless appearances in television commercials and national print ad campaigns for Pepsi One, for Chase Manhattan, for Old Navy, for Axe Body Spray, the lemur chirping, chittering, charming its way to the hearts of consumers across the continent. Annie Leibovitz photographs the lemur for the cover of Rolling Stone. Oprah secures a live interview and feeds the lemur checks mix from her bare right hand. Us Weekly publishes a full-page photo spread of the lemur perching on the shoulders of various Hollywood celebrities, Tom Hanks, Demi Moore, John Goodman, Anne Hathaway, Steve Buscemi. Sports Illustrated boldly declares the lemur its sports marsupial of the year. The man, only one spreadsheet box away from proceeding to AA Step 10, continuing to take personal inventory and, when wrong, promptly admitting it, writes the lemur care of the Canucks, explains his addiction, his recovery, admits his failings, 
asks for forgiveness, implores the lemur to visit him at the circus and paw his signature onto the appropriate box on his three-column spreadsheet, but all the man ever receives is the same eight and a half by eleven glossy of the lemur taking one of his trademark 100-mile-per-hour slap shots against the Calgary Flames. No pod signature, no transcribed chirps, hollers, squeals, no indication the lemur has read a single word of the man's dictated letters, handwritten by his sponsor, Zigarelli, the fallen king of the flying trapeze, as the man's scissor hands make legible penmanship next to impossible. The world's most aesthetically displeasing man has accomplished much during his time in AA. He's accepted that his appearance makes paying customers physically ill, that his livelihood depends upon his own congenital grotesquerie, that, unlike in the movies, he will never meet an extraordinary, kind-hearted, beautiful woman capable of looking past his hideous deformities and seeing the true worth that lies within his crusty, peeling, alligator-scaled skin. But this he cannot accept, that the lemur, his only true friend in the entire world, won't speak to him. Not that the lemur can actually speak, but he can chatter, he can chirp. Surely someone with the Canucks can put a phone up to the lemur's mouth. The man isn't asking for much. But no word comes from the lemur, and the man is crushed. He takes the lemur's eight and a half by eleven glossies, carpeting the floor of his cage car, and rips them up, one by one. He takes his three-column spreadsheet, gazing forlornly at the one remaining empty box, and feeds the entire record of his amended harm to a passing llama, who greedily devours all three pages with appreciative gusto. He spits whenever he sees a circus-goer wearing a number 66 jersey, rattles the bars whenever he hears carnies reenacting Canucks play-by-plays, returns to drinking, causes Ziccarelli the fallen king of the flying trapeze to shake his head in disappointment upon discovering the man passed out in a pile of domestics, Coronas, St. Pauli girls, Dos Equis. He calls the suicide and crisis intervention hotline, Gary the certified public accountant from another realm, graciously lending his cell phone, and is offered a seasonal discount on sunflowers and lilies of the valley as the credits end, as the screen goes black, as the curtains fall. I leave the theater, enter the parking lot, and the young woman I saw at the Cro-Magnon film, the dead ringer for the girl from 11th grade, pulls up in a Honda Civic. I can see her more clearly now, in the sodium glow of the parking lot's electric lights. It has to be her, the same girl who paid for her own ticket, seven years ago, as I fumbled frantically through my wallet for a chivalrous twenty. She gets out of the Civic, Hollywood gorgeous, accompanied by a man, a different man than before, I'm pretty sure, and walks right past me, showing no indication of having recognized me, disappearing into the theater with her man in the next round of moviegoers, awaiting their two hours of glitz, glamour, triumph of the human heart. I bike home, alone, passed by faceless, shapeless motorists, and once in bed, make the usual search inquiries on my laptop computer. A man cleans a woman's pool, and when I close my eyes, I am the man. The girl from 11th grade is the woman. 
excuse me, ma'am, but did you know that keeping your pool's skimmer baskets clear of debris will substantially increase the operating life of your electric pump? Yes. Yes. Oh, God. Yes. slightly asymmetrical facial features. He is a tapeworm that sings the collected b-sides of Faith No More. He is a compulsive masturbator. He is a hunter-gatherer. He is a Nobel Prize-winning physicist with no eyebrows and no sexual experience. Alas, alack, the woman can never be his. And yet, look here. The man takes the woman for a ride in his time-traveling Honda Civic, and after only a brief jaunt to a gladiator match circa 100 AD, she's stripping him naked amid distant howls of euphoria and death in the shadows of the Colosseum. The first time a girl ever saw me naked was my sophomore year of college. The look she gave me after I awkwardly removed my clothes before I fumblingly flicked off the light brought to mind the title of a 70s pop song my parents would often play on our living room record player when I was a child. Is that all there is? The man and the woman make love in the civic, navigating itself through revolutionary France, ancient Egypt, 
Stalinist Russia, the Bay of Pigs, until the civics transmission gives out in the Upper Paleolithic, and the man and the woman wait for 40,000 years until the invention of 24-hour roadside assistance. The first 10,000 years pass by easily, the man and the woman hunting, foraging, making love in the civics handsome leather-trimmed interior. The second 10,000 years have some bumpy patches, arguments over kills, cave cleanliness, equitable distribution of tubers and wild roots, nothing true love, happiness ever after, can't handle. The third 10,000 years are tough, there's no sugarcoating it, the man and woman in constant marital crisis, relentlessly question each other's commitment to their 300 century long relationship. Do you still love me? If you still love me, will you always love me? If you will always love me, then why will you always love me? Would you love me if I didn't own a time-traveling Civic? Would you love me if my breasts weren't delightfully supple and firm? Would you love me if I had pegs for legs, marbles for eyes, a trickle-filtered aquarium for genitalia, scissors for hands? Would you love me if I were the world's most aesthetically displeasing woman? Would you love me if I were the world's most aesthetically displeasing man? Of course, this is to be expected. If you can make it past the third 10,000 years, anyone will tell you, you're in the clear, smooth sailing, marital bliss is eternally yours. But then the last 10,000 years arrive and things don't get any easier. In fact, they become much harder, much more complex, more distractions, more temptations, more reasons to leave the safety of the Civic for something better, shinier, more supple. By the time 24-hour roadside assistance is invented and a tow truck arrives to haul the time-traveling Civic to the nearest Honda dealership and the four-door sedan's transmission is back in working order, the man, now alone, the woman long gone, lacks any desire for time travel, knowing what he knows now, that despite his best efforts, his personal history will conclude like this, loneliness, failure, betrayal, abandonment, and so he sells the Civic and buys American, a Ford Fiesta, completely incapable of time travel, lucky to even make it around the block. The telltale sounds of a blowjob emanate from behind me, which is most assuredly the theater's largest possible size of coke runs beneath my seat. The screen goes black, the curtain falls, and I see the girl from 11th grade in the theater disappearing out of darkness into darkness, and I rush for the parking lot, knocking over romantic couples, some of them too young to see the movie without parental permission, some of them eligible for the theater's senior discount. I reach the girl just as she and a new man get into her Honda Civic, and without thinking, I rap on the driver's side window. Excuse me, I say, as she lowers the window with a push of a button, but does your Civic travel through time? She raises the window, starts the engine, pulls out, drives away, disappears, but not before she looks me in the eye warmly and laughs. A boy loves a girl. The boy is from the wrong side of the tracks. On the right side of the tracks, there are trust falls and charity walkathons and prayer gardens. On the wrong side of the tracks, there are meth labs and gang rapes 
the Cocker Spaniels bludgeoned for sport. The boy posits that although there is indeed a wrong and right side of the tracks, the tracks themselves are neither wrong nor right, and thus it would be possible for the girl to love him, provided she spent the rest of her life on the actual tracks. The boy recognizes that this is something of a tall order, but like his disgraced, hard-drinking, water-hazard-dwelling golf coach always says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and so the boy rolls up his sleeves and paces contemplatively outside a Waffle House and shoes golf tees down to tiny, non-marked nubs as he figures out the logistics of sustaining everlasting storybook love on our nation's transit infrastructure. The boy's initial preparations involve compiling a detailed record of all train schedules so he and his true love will know when to roll out of death's way, he to his wrong side, she to her right. After the train's final car is passed, they can again reunite on the tracks, their few minutes of separation a small price to pay for a lifetime of domestic, track-occupying bliss. The next step involves making the tracks comfortable for the girl inviting, hospitable. A permanent structure, like the hilltop mansion the girl is used to, is impossible, of course, as any dwelling will need to be quickly shoved aside, as easily as the jasmine-scented body of the boy's true love at the first rumblings of an oncoming train. But after some cursory experiments with some mail-order yurts and wigwams, the boy concludes that a lightweight tent or teepee offers the boy and girl both the comfort and the portability required for a life spent happily ever after on the tracks. The final step, then, is to actually convince the girl to join him till death does them part between the tracks and the parallel wooden ties, but this proves to be far more difficult than the boy has anticipated. First of all, Every time he tries to cross to the other side of the tracks, he is laughed at and spit upon and beaten senseless with top-of-the-line sporting goods. Second, any time he tries to communicate his hopes and dreams of a glittering, track-inhabiting future to the girl, his recurrent head injuries from the golf club and tennis racket beatings cause his words to slur, his proclamations of love to come out all wrong, and most of the boys' and girls' interactions involve the girl drawing back in horror and disgust, and the boy coughing up copious amounts of blood. But the boy is resilient. If he can't come to the girl, he will wait for her to come to him. He constructs his portable teepee on the tracks, lies in wait, prays, hopes, wishes, dreams, hurriedly escapes from oncoming trains before they crush him into a bloody, mealy pulp. A woman brings another woman to sexual climax in the seat beside me. A garbage bin full of coke spills from the balcony, spattering on the heads of paying customers like carbonated rain. I exit the theater, enter the parking lot, and the young woman, my 11th grade date, is there in her Honda Civic, making out with a man I swear stuffed me into a St. Vincent de Paul donation box when we were both in 5th grade. I wrap my knuckles against the Civic's driver's side window, and as the man unbuttons the woman's blouse, removes her seatbelt, and turns up the radio, playing mid-career Boz Skaggs at a deafening volume, the woman rolls down the window with the press of a button, awaits what I have to say. But I have nothing to say, so, instead, I dance. Boz provides the rhythm. I provide the rest. 
I soft shoe in the parking lot. I sashay around a traffic circle. I pirouette, swing around electric light poles, leap acrobatically onto the hoods of SUVs and foreign-made compact cars, and soon complete strangers join me, following my every move as if choreographed, by the grand finale at least 100 moviegoers joining me in a spontaneous chorus line, many of them wearing tights, some wearing sequins, one wearing a loincloth, another wearing checkered socks and pleated white pants. I return to the Civic's driver's side window as Boz Skagg segues into the Reverend Al Green and asks the woman if she'd like to see a movie with me sometime. She tells me she'll think about it as the man's hand frisks wildly beneath her skirt. The woman rolls up her window. Al Green grows muffled, faint, the engine roars, and the Civic drives off. The chorus line disperses. I am once again alone. A pizza delivery man pulls up, offers me a piping hot 12-inch pepperoni. The man in the checkered socks yells four and hits a golf ball through the windshield of a 96 Trans Am. A dog races past, chasing after a regulation-sized basketball, followed by a small child, followed by a visibly intoxicated clown. Somewhere in the distance, there's the haunting cry of an elephant. child is lonely. His mother abandoned him at a Waffle House when he was an infant, and he has since been raised by a series of unenthusiastic foster parents. One had a skin disease. One had scissor hands. One was an unfrozen caveman from the Upper Paleolithic. The child's classmates regularly coat his entire body with mashed potatoes and individually packaged ketchup in the school cafeteria. His cricket teammates regularly paddle him unconscious and dump his crumpled, ketchup-covered body in the nearest pile of angry red ants. Luckily, the child befriends an actual cricket who can swing a regulation-sized bat and bowl a devilish googly. There's nothing in the rules that says a cricket can't play cricket, says the umpire, and the child's team, propelled by the spectacular play of the cricket, gains such renown that it's invited to an international tournament in Johannesburg where it captures a five-wicket victory over heavily favored Australia and the imagination of every sports fan in the United States, resulting in school children across the country tossing aside their Louisville sluggers in favor of kookaburra biggest kahunas and gaining an affinity for tea intervals and solid white trousers. I see the woman, the owner of the Civic, in the theater, flanked on either side by brutish, gargantua-sized men in pinstripe suits. The men comment on the film in some Slavic-sounding language and plow through packages of jujubes until the wrappers form a three-foot pile on the cinema floor. The child returns to his hometown from Johannesburg a hero, his classmates begging for his forgiveness, his foster parents a great deal more enthusiastic, his troubled fugitive coach granted a gubernatorial pardon for his decade-old slayings of a family of four at Yellowstone National Park, and the child and the cricket live happily ever after. The end. Fiend. That's all, folks. The woman rises, exits, accompanied by the gargantuan Slavic men, and I follow, 
wade through a waist-deep river of Coke Zero, swim past romantic couples making love in a syrupy carbonated sea, the lovers' heads surfacing to gasp with pleasure, gasp for air. Before exiting the theater, I glance back at the screen and see the child's biological mother call the Suicide and Crisis Intervention Hotline. The operator takes down her credit card number and shipping information for a bouquet of bleeding hearts. In the parking lot, all is chaos. Shots ring out. Tires screech. The Slavic men draw semi-automatic handguns from their pinstripe suits, and the young woman crumples to the ground in terror. Impulsively playing the hero, I rush to the woman's side, scoop her up, ferry her to the safety of her Honda Civic, just as a woolly mammoth rampages past, smashing into a 2002 Toyota Prius. Let's get out of here, I say, and the woman takes me back in time to 11th grade. We stand together in the theater lobby, at the ticket counter, our first date, and at the primal moment when we both reach for our wallets, my hand defies history, fishes out a chivalrous twenty. Two students, I say, and the boy at the register dispenses our tickets, my change. I am aware of the proper etiquette. I am aware of the proper technique. I lead the woman by the hand into the darkened theater, choose my seat carefully so as not to occlude the view of the couples behind me, and after the previews of coming attractions past, we watch a boy from the wrong side of the tracks when the heart of his true beloved, thanks to the sage wisdom of his hard-drinking, shack-residing mentor, my arm settling onto the woman's shoulders, my lips drifting towards hers for a kiss, a 99-piece orchestra swelling, the audience applauding, a shower of Coca-Cola drenching us from the balcony. We go to my parents' house in the Civic, order a Domino's pizza, and when the delivery man arrives, I knock him unconscious, steal his clothes, and knock on my own door. The woman answers, did someone order a piping hot 12-inch pepperoni, I ask? Yes, she says. Yes, yes. Oh God, yes. a woman. He is too ugly. He is too lonely. He is from the wrong side of the tracks. When he was a child, at Catholic school, his classmates tried to drown him in holy water. His badminton teammates force-fed him synthetic strings and shuttlecocks. There's nothing in the rules that says a deadly flesh-eating parasite can't play badminton. The young woman and I sit together, sipping coke from the same straw, eating popcorn out of one another's hands, caressing each other's skin with jujubes, and the man on the screen purchases a used Honda Civic from a disgraced, heroin-addicted golf bro whose home address on the Civic's title is the sand trap behind the green on hole 13. Do you love me? whispers the young woman into my ear as the man takes the Honda for a test drive in biblical Judea, and I whisper back, of course I love you. A woman seated behind us asked two nearby men if they could fix a plumbing problem. Coke Zero is pouring out of her pipes, flooding her basement, ruining her carpeting, drowning her pets. One of the men is an unfrozen caveman from the Upper Paleolithic. The other man has scissors for hands.
The boy loves a girl. The boy is a tennis player, a psoriasis sufferer, a tap dancer. He works the late shift at Waffle House. He has a tapeworm that sings, O Canada. He sublets a teepee on a commercial railroad crossing, where flashing red lights indicate it's time to change his address every hour on the hour. The young woman, my darling from 11th grade, again whispers into my ear, her breath fragrant with the sugary tang of Sour Patch Kids, as the boy on the screen hastily disassembles his portable residence in the shadow of an oncoming train. Will you always love me, she says, and I whisper back, of course I will always love you. The train whistle blows, the railroad crossing bells clatter, a man with no eyebrows asks a Smithsonian tour guide if she needs help testing the pH level of her pool, and she says, the ice age was caused by fluctuations in the amount of solar radiation hitting the earth, as she runs her fingers across his hairless chest, as she suggestively opens a package of sodium carbonate with her teeth. A child is lonely, a dog plays basketball, a frog plays racquetball, a horse rides another horse to victory in the 1982 Belmont Stakes. If you will always love me, then why will you always love me, says the young woman into my ear, as a ring-tailed lemur scores a short-handed goal against the Calgary Flames, but I don't answer. I just chop my popcorn, suck my Coca-Cola, caress my lover's skin with artificially flavored sweets. The lemur shoots a commercial for Axe Body Spray, wherein leggy models and thong bikinis and figure skates chase the lemur around the Rockefeller Center ice rink to Boz Skaggs' Lido Shuffle. A man chauffeurs a woman to classical Athens in a Honda Civic, which Socrates takes for a test drive around the Acropolis while conducting a spirited dialogue with Plato on the Civic's multi-point fuel injection, power-assisted rack and pinion steering, and handsome leather-trimmed interior. Tell me, says the young woman, seated beside me, tell me one reason why you love me. A pizza delivery man appears in our aisle, sidling past our neighbors, stepping on our feet. Who ordered a piping hot 12-inch pepperoni, he says, and 30 different women raise their hands. A man loves a woman, a boy loves a girl, a girl loves a girl, a boy loves a man. My darling from 11th grade leaves her seat and stands before me, occluding my view, blocking the screen, and I immediately become worried that she's obscuring the vision of the couple seated behind me, that she's obstructing someone else's enjoyment. Would you love me if I had a skin disease, she says, clutching my hand, as a 99-piece orchestra swells behind her. Would you love me if my breasts weren't supple and firm? I crane my head to the side and see the ring-tailed lemur, his ringtail blotted out by my beloved, retired to his hilltop mansion in suburban Vancouver with its pool table, its big-screen TV, its portable tanning bed. On the big-screen TV, the lemur watches himself score a hat-trick against the Buffalo Sabres. Lemur shoots. Lemur scores. Next, he watches a commercial for Old Navy, watches himself sell himself maternity fleece drawstring pants. A tidal wave of Coke Zero washes away the first two rows of the audience. A recently unfrozen woolly mammoth paddles in the surf. A queue of service personnel, stretching all the way to the back of the theater, accosts a woman behind me. I'm here to install the cable. 
I'm here to trim the hedges. I'm here to refurbish the siding. I'm here to tar the roof. The woman tosses away her clothing and inhibitions and gratitude, her bra landing on a compulsive masturbator, her blouse landing on a cruel, violent, substance-abusing clown. A man loves a woman, oldest story in the book. A man loves a woman, but the man is too shy, he's too lonely, too luckless, too loveless, too late. He has no money, no time-traveling Honda Civic, no Astaire-like agility, emboletic grace. He has a box of jujubes, he has a gargantua-sized popcorn, he has the theater's largest possible incarnation of coke. He's a creep, a loser, a loner, a failure, alas, alack. The woman can never be his. On the parts of the screen not obscured by my beloved, I can make out the occasional golf club, the occasional tennis racket, the occasional compact car, sideshow freak, psoriasis sufferer. I can discern the Adam's apples of men, the childbearing hips of women, boys' shadows, dogs' tails, the genetic signatures of tapeworms and hantaviruses. I can see the ring-tailed lemur, dreaming of his childhood in Madagascar, eating leaves, eating berries, mating and masticating contentedly in the deciduous forest. I can see the lemur in his mansion, in isolation, in Vancouver, wondering, is it all worth it? The fame, the fortune, the pool table, the big screen TV, the portable tanning bed, as he calls the suicide and crisis intervention hotline, the operator informing him that this Valentine's Day, there is a special on red and yellow roses. Would you love me if I were as lonely as you, says the young woman standing before me, if I were as desperate as you, as feckless as you, as nervous, as homely, as ineffectual? Would you love me if I had a skin disease, if I had scissors for hands, if I was an unfrozen cavewoman from the Upper Paleolithic? Would you love me if you met someone else who kind of looked like me, but whose house had a pool table, a big screen TV, and a portable tanning bed? Would you love me if I were standing before you asking, would you love me if I were standing before you asking, would you love me? A man loves a woman. You asking, a boy loves a girl. If I were standing before you asking, a dog plays basketball. If I were standing a tapeworm plays asking, women's lacrosse. Would you love me? Clean the woman's asking, pool. Would you love me? I offer her a ride. Asking, would you love me? I fix her pipes. You asking, would you love me? There is a miracle, a metamorphosis. Would you love me? There is an orchestra, a big band, a jazz trio, Voskags. There are first assistant directors, second assistant directors, third assistant directors. There is happiness ever after. We leave together, arm in arm. I bike home, alone, beneath distant, glittering stars. A man loves a woman, a boy loves a girl. The couples leave, file out the exits, get into Honda Civics, travel through time. The lemur crawls into his portable tanning bed, selects the maximum intensity, shuts the lid, dreams of mating and masticating in the deciduous forest. I'm alone. 
standing before you. I'm not alone. Would you love me if I were The screen goes black. Asking, would the curtains fall? I standing before you asking. Go. Would you love me if I were standing before you asking? I am still here.